Good morning, Revelation Church. So good to be opening up God's word with you today. In 2015, Microsoft released some research that said that the average attention span of an American in the year 2000 was 12 seconds, but in the year 2015 had dropped down to eight seconds, an attention span of just eight seconds. Now for reference, a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. So we have now dropped below goldfish. And then the Technical University of Denmark last year released some, um, some, some research that said that because of the sheer abundance of content that is now available to us and bombarding us at any given moment, we are finding it harder and harder and harder to concentrate on any one thing for any length of time. Um, and I know that to be true for myself. I, I read scripture every morning. I wake up, try and get it done as the first thing that I do. But I have found just in the last few weeks, as I have been trying to concentrate on God's revealed word for me, I find this nagging, screaming desire in me to check the weather forecast. I just want to, there's this something in me that just wants to break my concentration to check what the weather is going to be like today. Now, partly, of course, that is because I'm British and just absolutely obsessed with the weather. But I think it speaks to, and I'm sure you know examples for yourself, of how we just can't concentrate on any one thing anymore. We've lost that ability to just look at one thing for any length of time. And that the invitation of today's scripture is to do exactly that. We're in a teaching series called A Certain Future, as, as was said just, just a minute ago, uh, our teaching series in the book of Revelation. Uh, we find ourselves in, a, in an environment where we are shrouded with uncertainty everywhere. And what is going to happen next in our life is so uncertain. Just this week, uh, the job support scheme was announced by the government on Thursday. Friday morning, what was the most, what was the, the first word of the, the headline of the top story on the BBC News website? uncertainty. It seems like even anything that is, is designed to produce some level of clarity and certainty for us only leads to more uncertainty in these times. And so the, the purpose, the aim of this series is to, to, to ground ourselves and to root our feet in that which we can be certain of as uncertainty surrounds us. And the thing is, Jesus doesn't actually want us, and the Bible's story is not for us to try and find certainty in this age. And so what we're kind of training ourselves to do here is to, to, to get into the Bible's narrative of our certainty should come from what we know is going to happen, how we know how the story is going to end and what our eternal future with Jesus is going to look like. And so that is why we're opening up the book of Revelation and turning right to the end to get into that story. And so today's message, the title is called simply Behold. And we are going to see how our certainty of the future doesn't just come from what we know is going to happen, but the one who is going to bring it in and make it happen. And that as we see him, certainty and confidence can arise in our hearts. So we're going to read from, um, from Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 together. The words will appear on the screen, but if you do have a Bible, grab one, because uh, we'll, be, we'll be dissecting the passage and walking through it line by line. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is perhaps well, it's certainly one of the most vivid descriptions of Jesus that we have in the whole of Scripture. And just a reminder that as we engage with Revelation, with all of its, its, its imagery, that the book of Revelation was actually a letter written by John to a number of churches um, at the time. And the churches that, that were, were made up of real people and they were facing real challenges in, in being Christians at the time. Um, the culture that they were in was that they were being oppressed and to some would say persecuted by the Roman Empire. And certainly living as Christians and being the church at the, this time was becoming increasingly difficult. There's so much pressure to compromise, to give in, to start worshipping Caesar as well as Jesus or instead of Jesus. And they were facing a number of the questions that we face of what is, what is church life actually going to look like in the coming years? And it, will the church actually survive this time? And given everything that they were facing, and John was writing a letter to them, and Jesus wanted to speak to them through this letter, we might think, well, what, what is it that these churches needed from Jesus at this time? Maybe they needed a, a bit of a kind of explanation as to, Jesus, what exactly are you up to in all of this Roman persecution? And, and what is your plan for working it all for good? Or perhaps what they needed was a bit of a timeline from Jesus, a bit of an assurance of like, this is going to last for, for three or four years and then it's going to be over and you're going to enjoy some period of bliss. So just stick it out for three or four years. And we might feel the same. We might think, Jesus, what I need from you right now is I need to know when I'm going to actually be able to meet my course mates in person and start a university experience that is something that looks like normal. Or we might be thinking, Jesus, what I need to know is you promised to me that you're going to work everything for good. How is me losing my job because of this global pandemic? Were you working things for good? How does this fit into your grand storyline for my life? But what the book of Revelation says is that despite all of the challenges that we're facing, what we need is we don't need those answers. Now, Jesus cares deeply about all of those issues. He really does. But what he says is that what we really need is we need to see him as he is. We need a revelation of him. That's exactly how the letter starts. Chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That what these churches needed, what we need is simply to see him, for him to be revealed and to gaze upon him. Or as it says in verse 11, to behold him. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Just before we get into it, just that what the visions in, in Revelation do is that they expose just how, how literal minded we are here in the West. That if I was, for example, to say to you, uh, just, just imagine an elephant wearing a yellow and pink spotty hat. And at the minute, probably what you've got in your mind's eye is something that looks like an elephant wearing a pink and yellow spotty hat. And if I asked you to then draw it down, you could do it or at least have a go at it. And, and, and that would be that. But the visions in Revelation 
don't work like that. You can't picture them in an accurate way that you would then be able to draw, the, draw it down. The, it, it, they aren't logical. Sometimes they'll say, this thing looks like this, but it also looks like this. And you think, how am I meant to draw that or imagine it? But how the, verses, the, the visions in Revelation work is that they describe, each component part of the description describes a true characteristic of, of the thing or the person that it's talking about. And then together, each of these true characteristics add up to provide a true reality of the thing or the person that is being described. It's just worth keeping that in mind as we work through the picture of Jesus that we have before us today. So verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. Now this is a good idea, a good signifier for us that we are about to see something pretty magnificent. A white horse was, was symbolic of nobility, of authority, of power, but more than that, it was a sign of, of purity, that the one riding on this has not known corruption. There is no evil or, or defect in him. He is only good, he is only pure. And it wastes no time in elaborating. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. The first thing we learn about this one is that he is faithful. And that is exactly what is happening in him coming down out of heaven, is he is showing himself to be faithful. Scripture from the very beginning has promised that evil is not going to get the last word. Scripture from the very beginning has promised Yahweh speaks to his people and says, I am going to bring about a, a holy and righteous and just society where there will be no sin, there will be no evil. And Yahweh says, I will make that happen. This won't be because you are very good at forming society, you are very good at being obedient. No, I will bring it about. And then as the narrative comes on, Jesus appears, the Messiah, the one that is going to make it happen. And he repeatedly says, I am going to die. I will then be risen again. And after I have ascended into heaven, I will come back. I will return. He says in John chapter 14, he said, I will return on the clouds. And here as heaven opens, and he descends down from heaven is the fulfillment of that promise. The faithful one is returning. Jesus is coming back to his creation at the end of time. That he is faithful to begin salvation and he is faithful to see it through to the end and complete it. But not just faithful, he is true. Now this doesn't just say that Jesus says true things but that he himself is true. That when we see Jesus like this, when he comes down, we are going to see truth itself. We are going to behold truth. This means that it is impossible for Jesus to defraud us, to trick us, to manipulate us, to deceive us. It means that everything that follows about him is completely right. 
that it's not some kind of trick of the camera, it's not smoke and mirrors, it's not because he's kind of done a few press-ups before he's turned up and so he looks big and strong. No, this is an accurate and complete and true image of who he is and how we will see him. In an age at the moment where we are told don't trust everything that you see. Don't trust everything that you read on the internet. And now, I don't know if you've heard of this, um, this deep fakes phenomenon. We now can't trust everything that we watch on video because there's, a, there's a, a, one of um, Barack Obama that someone's put together as an example of just how easy it is now to manipulate video to make it look like someone is saying something that they're not that we have to constantly be questioning, can I trust this? Is this real? Is this right? How refreshing in an age such as this, where deception and manipulation is everywhere, to be able to say, when we look at Jesus and we see him like this, we, have, we don't have to ask any of those questions. He is as he appears. There is no deception, no wrinkle, no manipulation to him. He is as he appears. And then continuing on in verse 12, uh, to, to verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This means that he sees everything and is able to perceive all. And on his head are many diadems. Now, diadems are like crowns that, are, that go on someone and they signify power in biblical imagery. And so it's saying that Jesus is powerful, but it's saying a little bit more than that. It's referring back to chapters 12 and 13. And in those two chapters, we get some pretty ugly and fearsome images of evil. In chapter 12, we see a, a picture of a dragon that is ferocious and ugly and the, the, the embodiment of evil itself. And this dragon is wearing seven diadems on his head. And seven in the Jewish thought was, um, was, was the image, it was a number of completion and totality. And so you see this dragon wearing seven crowns, seven diadems, and we think he looks like the most powerful beast or thing that has ever existed, and he is evil. And then chapter 13, immediately following on, we see a beast, again, ugly, evil, ferocious, and he's wearing 10 diadems on his head. And next to them, we're meant to think these are the most evil and ferocious and, uh, and dealers of all that is wicked and corrupt that we could ever imagine. And to our eyes, they are the most powerful things that has ever have ever existed. It's meant to be terrifying and fearsome for us until chapter 19, until one appears that is not wearing seven diadems, he's not wearing 10 diadems, he is wearing many diadems. Many crowns of power are on his head. Uh, an innumerable multiplicity of diadems are on his head. An uncountable number. Power upon power upon power upon power. But what has happened for us is that we hit, we, what we see here is truth with power. This is significant for us. Power has been corrupted in our understanding because of the beast and because of the dragon, these dark invisible forces that have been working throughout history, they have corrupted power. Power now to us means, means uh, corruption, it means enslaving, it means oppressing people, 
that even in today's news cycle with the, the United States have got an election coming up and we look at that and it is very difficult, without getting into all the politics of it, it is very difficult to see decisions made and policies made by those in power not seeking to serve themselves in some way. It's very difficult to think this is purely for the interest of the people and this is not to try and serve your, uh, your ambitions to serve another term. Our whole understanding of power has been corrupted. But what we see here is that this faithful and true one is going to hold complete power. And he is coming to redeem our understanding of what power means and looks like. That it is not a self-serving power, but a power that gives, a power that shares, a power that builds up. We have almost no category for trying to understand what this might look like, what it feels like to be, to know this power. But all we need to know is that power to our understanding has been corrupted, but Jesus is coming to make it pure and right once again. The fall itself was what has broken our understanding of what, what power looks like. But this is a power that has there is total power, but yet with total integrity, total truth and total faithfulness as well. Carrying on verse 12. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. And this is one of those kind of confusing moments because actually in this description we have three times where we are told Jesus's name and we are told it, we're told the different names that he has. And yet now we hear he's got a name, but no one knows it. But this tells us something, it's illogical to us, but it tells us something deeply fascinating about Jesus. You see, the problem with me is that I am incredibly uninteresting. One of the moments that provokes the deepest level of anxiety in me, and I don't know if you can relate to this, I don't know if you've been in a similar situation, where you're in a group setting and, and someone says, oh yeah, just let's just go round and introduce ourselves and just tell us your name and uh, tell us something interesting about yourself. Have you ever been in a situation like that? And, and you just think, I don't, I don't know how you respond, but I just think, oh, tell us something interesting about yourself. Nope. I've, I've got nothing. I have a total blank. And if I'm not gambling, it can lead to kind of existential crisis. I am the most boring person who has ever existed. <laughs> not so with Jesus. What this is saying where it says that there is a name, he has a name that no one knows but himself, is that even when Jesus appears in this, this splendor, this glory, this magnificence, there will be a level to him that we will, we will not be able to understand him. There will be more for us to know and grasp. What we see here is that Jesus is infinitely and endlessly and ceaselessly knowable to us. That there is a divine mystery to him that just goes on and on and on and on. That we will keep getting to know and keep seeing his goodness un uh, unveiled and unraveled and revealed to us for time and time and time as time goes on forever and ever. I think sometimes we can think that 
we are going to get to the new creation and we are going to see Jesus and that is going to be amazing. We're going to see him as he really is and it's going to blow our minds. It's going to blow us away and we'll spend time looking at him and then perhaps we'll have a kind of wander around the new creation. But then after a little bit, we'll kind of look at our watch and think, hmm, eternity is quite a long time, isn't it? But here's the thing. We won't have seen Jesus. We will never have seen Jesus. We will just keep going on seeing Jesus. That however close we get, however deep our union with him, there will always be more to discover. There will always be a newness to him, always greater depths of himself that we are still to find and we are still to uncover. And because he is good, that will fill our hearts with joy. That will captivate us. We will wake up in the morning in new creation, if we sleep, not really quite sure, but we will wake up delighted and excited that we get to find out more about Jesus today and that will go on for eternity. He will never get old. He will never get boring. You know that, that that addiction that we have to newness and to novelty. We always want the new thing. We want to buy that dress, not because it's a better dress than the ones we got or superior in any real way, but it just seems like it is because it's new and it's not our old dresses that we now hate. We love the new thing. You know, that desire is going to be fulfilled when we are with Jesus. That desire for constantly having new things will be met and find its total fulfillment in our relationship and in just simply seeing Jesus. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And this is an interesting one. Commentators are divided. Is he talking about his own blood? Is he talking about the blood of his enemies? I think, on balance, it's actually both. I think for sure it is talking about Jesus. Jesus' robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies. He is, he is showing and revealing he is the one who has conquered. He has crushed already. His enemies are under his feet. He has won the battle. But how has he won that battle? How has he put his enemies under his feet? The only way that he has conquered is by the shedding of his own blood. This is a sign to us that yes, he has conquered, but a reminder that this, this risen warrior king will always be eternally the slain lamb. 28 times already in the book of Revelation, John has referred to Jesus by his favorite word for him, his favorite descriptor, the lamb. We have to make sure we don't just see this image and think that this is the new Jesus. This is how he's now, he now is. No, he will for always be this, but he will always be as well, the slain lamb. And here is our reminder that he only has this power, this authority. Where has this all come from? How did he receive it? By becoming the slain, slain lamb by becoming the one who sacrificed himself, who embraced weakness, embraced self-giving, all the way to the point of a painful, horrific, humiliating, shame-filled death on the cross. 
And it is through death and only through death that he has received this unmatched power, this strength, this power and authority that he now has. That true power, another sign to us, another reminder, true power only comes through embracing suffering and weakness. I think what a word for us at this time that it is through the suffering and the weakness of, of online church and of not being able to be with one another and of, 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 being, of feeling hamstringed and held back through that suffering, through that weakness, that we receive true power through God. That is his economy. That is now how it works. It's upside down. It's on its head. But this is how true power and strength comes about. And it is this power and this strength that he then shares. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Again, another one where commentators, they can't quite decide. Is this... Is this uh, the armies of heaven, are they angels or are they, are they the saints? Are they, are they us? And on balance, I think it makes most sense that it's us. In chapter 17, it seems to appear that, that, we are, that, that, that God's people are with him in a very similar scenario. And we are wearing, or the description is people in, in white. And actually only once in the whole book of Revelation are angels described as wearing white. But quite a number of times, uh, us, God's people, are described as wearing white. Here we see something wonderful and magnificent about Jesus yet again. That here we see, how does this king, how does he treat those that are in his power? Is he like some of the kings that we know of old? Is he like King Saul, who was so insecure that those in his kingdom, he, he, he was worried they're going to try and overthrow him and, and try and show their power. So he would continually push them down and oppress them and, and rob them of opportunity. Or is he perhaps like King David, who, yeah, he was a good king in many ways. But when he saw something in his kingdom, when he saw the, the, the wife of one of his subjects, he thought, well, I'm going to have that. I'm going to take from those that I'm in power over. Is that what Jesus is like? Here we see he is the complete opposite of those things. He is so secure that actually he looks to raise those that he's in power up, uh, over, up to his level. And he's so generous. He doesn't look to try and take from his people. He is looking to give. That here we see he, he raises his people up. That we too will be riding on white horses just like our king. We will be with him at this moment. And he is so generous that he is gifting us and giving us robes of royalty and purity as his people and as we march out with him we see that one of the most stunning things about Jesus is that everything that he has everything he looks to share now, this, this is a big moment for Jesus. This is his big reveal. This is a time where all of the eyes of creation are upon him as he comes down in this new way, revealing a new side of who he is. The camera lens is focused entirely on upon him. The spotlight is shining on him. This is the moment for him to soak up and receive all of his glory. And what does he do with the spotlight? 
where he, he tries to bring, and he does, he brings us into the frame. That here, as he marches out into battle, we find ourselves arrayed in, in the splendour and we find ourselves following him. And he, he wants to put the spotlight on us, his people. He wants us to be seen within the glory of this image. And our minds might immediately think to turn to, well, what does this actually mean? What's this actually going to look like? What's it going to be like? But I think what, what the, the point of this image is, is not for us to think in those terms, but to be thinking as this one, as this one that alone is going to bring about the moment of greatest victory and the moment of greatest triumph that the world has ever seen, that creation will ever know, as he alone is going to do it, as he looks to receive all of his glory and his honour and his adulation, his desire is not to take all of that for himself, not to direct it to his very being. No, his desire is to take that glory and honour and to share it with us, to pass it on, to draw us into his glory and his honour. It's one of the most mind-bending, fascinating things that Jesus is so generous and such a giver that somehow he is able to share his divine glory with us who are not divine and we will not be divine. We will not be gods, yet somehow he will share something of his godliness with us. And that is his greatest joy and his greatest desire. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And here comes clearly into focus what it is that he has come to do. He has come to crush evil, some of the evil that we looked at last week and some of it we'll see more in view next week. He has come to crush evil, to put it fully and firmly and finally under his feet. This is maybe the Jesus, the side of him that we don't often like to think about. That when we read of him treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, that's not an image. We don't necessarily like to dwell on the fury of Jesus. That we might think, oh, I kind of want to backpedal away from that. And where's that bit in the Bible that talks about him being nice to the children? I'll go to that. But I want us to imagine for a moment what if Jesus didn't have fury over evil? What if he was unmoved by innocent police officers being shot and killed in their place of work? What if he was unmoved by innocent civilians being brutally murdered at the hands of police officers in their homes? What if he was passionless about Ouija Muslims in their scores being carted off to concentration camps? What if he was passionless about the rampant rise of domestic abuse in our country, in our neighbourhoods all around us at this time? What if he was unmoved by the, the pornography epidemic that is luring so many into darkness and gripping a generation and destroying marriages and wrecking homes? 
What if he was unmoved by the rampant evil of substance abuse and addiction that grips so many and terrorises so many that, will lead, that leads to many facing this winter, a cold winter, homeless on the streets of Manchester? Imagine if Jesus didn't feel fury at a global pandemic, a virus that is ravaging this world, that is ending the lives of so many so soon, that is destroying homes and breaking communities, that is preventing his church from being in the world and being to the world all that it should be. How could that Jesus truly be good? Now he shows his goodness to us by having a white hot hatred and fury at the evil that goes against good. He shows his goodness by showing he will not tolerate these things. And here he is riding out against them, riding out against the, the architects of all of those evils and the many more that we know and that we hate, riding out against them, against these invisible powers that have entered into an invaded creation and are working and lie behind all of the wrong that we know in society, all that we want to see made right. Jesus is riding out against them to come and finally and fully destroy them and put an end to them. Yet he doesn't come wielding a weapon of war. Verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now he's a king riding on a horse. What we should be reading or what we expect to read would be on his robe and on his thigh is a sword, is a weapon of war, is something to strike down his enemies with. But instead he comes with a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His supremacy does not come through the might of his hand. His power and his, his authority is not shown in physical violence. His power and his authority comes from a very different place. And we might think, well, where is it? Well, we've already seen it in verse 15. From his mouth, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. His power proceeds from his mouth. His might and his strength is not shown by the, the power of his hand, but in the power of his words. He really is not like other kings. He is the, the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords and the sight of his power is not found in the flash of a sword not found found in the violent strike but the sight of his power 
is found in the truth of his words. And in verses 17 through to 19 that follow, let me read them out for us. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the beast I referred to earlier, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And here we have a description of a battle about to take place and all of the fairly gruesome imagery of of the birds looking to devour flesh and all of those things. They are they're they're calling back to Ezekiel chapter 39 and and helping us see a a huge battle is about to take place in in Ezekiel 39 uh, is a is a battle, a major victory of God against the forces of evil that allowed for the, the ingathering of God's people to take place and the completion of redemption for a time. And it's kind of harking back to that and saying something of that order is about to happen. And, and verse nine kind of elaborates on it and says uh, that the, the beasts and the kings of the earth, are, their armies are gathered for war against this rider that has appeared. And we're primed for something to take place here. This, it seems like a great battle is about to take place, but yet we've seen that this king, he's not holding his sword. His, sword, his, his power seems to come from a very different place. And the war that we hear about in verse 19 isn't just any war. But in, in the Greek, as in other places in, in Revelation that refer to exactly the same battle, it doesn't just say war, it says the war. This is the battle in chapter 16, it's referred to, you might have heard it before, the battle of Armageddon. This is the battle of good versus evil. This is the site of uh, the, the thing that all of creation has been leading up to. The moment of who will triumph, good or evil. It is cataclysmic, it is dramatic, the, the stakes could not be higher. Can you feel the tension rising? What is going to happen? Verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet. That's it. That's what it says. That's the description. Witness the sheer power and strength and authority and dominance of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he doesn't fight with a sword because he is of a totally different order to these powers. He doesn't fight with their weapons. He doesn't reciprocate with violence in the way that they have fought with violence over the many centuries and and millennia of creation. He simply speaks and they are captured. And they are then, verse 20, thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. And we might look at this and think, hang on, this was meant to be the greatest battle that has ever happened. The moment of of highest drama, of good versus evil, the final battle between the two of them. 
Surely it deserves a little bit more description. Surely it deserves a little bit more drama and that there should be more going on here. Yet from all we've seen of the description of Jesus here, from all we've read, actually I think as we have soaked in this picture of Jesus, it makes total sense that there is in fact no battle. There is no back and forth. There isn't casualties lost on both sides. There isn't a, a gaining and then losing and then regaining of ground. There's not a conflict fought out over a number of years. That although these powers might be able to say that they, they have power, they have seven diadems on their head, they have 10. This rider has a multitude of diadems on his head. That although these powers might be able to claim temporary authority in this world for a time, maybe they would have king, kingdom reign for a, for a period. Ultimately, they must find submission to Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And even though they appear here ready for battle, ready to spill blood, the reality is their blood has already been spilled. That Jesus's robe has already been dipped in their blood. That as much as they might appear ready to fight and have a confidence that they can take Jesus down, the deeper reality is they have already been defeated. That this is not a dramatic moment in terms of which way is it going to go because the cross has already dealt a mortal blow to these powers. The cross has already sealed their fate. The cross, the moment in history that we now stand, we now sit the other side of that moment, means that there is no drama here. In fact, all of the drama of this passage is found in the, the wonderful descriptive imagery of the one who is on the horse. That the, the John is directing all of our attention away from the conquest, which is significant, and drawing all of our attention to the one who has conquered. And when we see him, when we simply behold him, we can know victory is assured. I think one of the things that makes us feel very uncertain at the moment is that we are in a time, this definitely feels like a time that has been weakening the church. We can't gather together, we're meeting online. It, it certainly doesn't feel like a time of strengthening. It feels like we're taking backward steps and we're already in a culture where we can, we can feel quite weak. We can feel like we're, we're up against it. We can feel like the tide of, of, of history is that we're becoming increasingly irrelevant and obscure and that culture is increasingly against us. And we can start to think, are we really on the right side? Are we really on the winning, victorious side at this point? And maybe you're a new student and you're turning up in halls and you're, you're surrounded by people and you're thinking, these people, they, they are not interested at all in my faith. 
that they, in fact, if I bring it up or I share it with them, either they just don't say anything or they just seem to think it's completely outdated. They seem to feel a bit of pity for me that I'd still believe this. And they just see it as an ancient artifact that the rest of history has moved on from. It can really knock our confidence. And for us as a, as a young church plant going through a time such as this, and for us feeling weak is kind of a natural disposition anyway, and then this all happens and it, we can start to think, what is the future for us as a church? And we can start to think, what does the future look like for the, for the church at large in the UK across the rest of the world? And we can start to ask ourselves, where can we look to to make sure that we know we are on the right path, that we really are going the right way? And the invitation of this passage is, is look up, behold, that as we see him as he truly is, as we behold the one who is faithful and true, we will see that we are on the right side. However weak we may appear, however much we might feel like we are the weakest, that, that we, even us, little old Revelation Church, we will one day find ourselves riding out with him behind the King of Kings, on the right side of him, our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords. That when history comes to an end, we are not going to be put to shame. We will have no doubts. We won't be questioning what is right or what isn't. We'll have no fears. We will find ourselves not only on the right side of history, but on the right side of a conquering king.